0: Passion for God and compassion for our neighbor. Reaching our region and beyond with the life-changing message of Jesus Christ. This is Crosswinds Church, and now, here's Pastor Jordan Gowing. Well, this morning we're going to start with a very serious question, one that we all must wrestle with and uh, answer uh, to the best of our ability. And that is this. Uh, It's crucial for us to answer honestly so that way we can move forward today. How many of you have listened to Christmas music already? All right, we, we have a number of guilty parties in here. Um, I'm, uh, I'm going to be honest, I have fallen prey to this temptation. Um, I'm usually one of the biggest, staunchest supporters of no Christmas music until after Thanksgiving. But I caved this week as I was preparing for this sermon. And of course, I'm, I'm going to be honest, it's not all my fault. I mean, you look outside and of course, uh, Christmas music comes to mind. And culturally today we see that Christmas seems to come earlier and earlier every year. At least our our cultural understanding of Christmas comes earlier and earlier. It's just a a part of brilliant marketing on on the part of, of these different companies. And as a church, we don't necessarily advocate for the Christmas marketing season starting earlier. But we all know that Christmas is coming soon. Maybe your children are excited that Christmas is just around the corner and they are counting down the days. Maybe you're counting down the days until you can travel or see family come to you. And even though we haven't officially reached Christmas season as a church, we thought that it would be appropriate for us to just take a a month or so and shift our focus to prepare our hearts, to prepare our minds for Christmas. If you come from a more traditional church background, you're probably familiar with the term Advent. Advent is a season on the church calendar leading up to Christmas where the church is intentional in taking some time to pause and to reflect on the coming of Christ. This word Advent literally just means coming, and it's a time to focus on the coming of Christ. It's a time where the church looks back at Christ's first coming but it's also a time for us to look forward, and as a church, to stir up our hearts, stir up our desires for the second coming of Jesus. And In order to do that as a church, we're going to take a break from Genesis, which we've been going through for the last month or so, and we're just going to take a moment and look at a different book. And the book that we're going to look at may surprise you, and you may say, what on earth is this church getting itself into? We're going to spend some time looking at the book of Leviticus. Now, Leviticus is oftentimes, as I even just did, it's a, it's a book that is sometimes the butt of jokes. It is sometimes uh, referred to as, uh, as a place where it takes a Herculean effort of spirituality to just make it through the book, let alone get edified from reading the book. But at the same time as we have some fun with it, it's also vitally important for us to recognize how important this book is to the story of God, how crucial it is to the people of God. In fact, I would say no other book in the Old Testament beside the Psalms influenced Jesus in his view of worship and his view of holiness more than the book of Leviticus did. Same can be said for the Apostle Apostle Paul and Peter and John and the rest of the first century church. No other book in the Old Testament besides the Psalms influenced the church's view of worship and holiness more than this book. And so over the next five weeks, we're going to dive into this book. We're going to spend some time wrestling through it. We're going to ask God to reveal to us what is true worship look like. We're going to ask God to reveal to us what it looks like to truly follow him, to truly honor him through the lens of Leviticus. And in order to do that, we're going to spend some time looking at five different sacrifices. As you open up to Leviticus chapter one, you'll notice that the first seven chapters just are devoted to instructions on how to offer different sacrifices. There's five that are explained, and so we're going to spend time one uh, one a week looking at one of these each week and it's our hope and our prayer that as we do this we're going to be able to tie them into christmas we're going to tie them into advent and preparing our hearts for the coming of jesus this morning we're going to be in leviticus chapter one i invite you to open up if you have a bible to turn to leviticus one but before we do that we're just going to take a moment and just try to understand leviticus as a whole let's pray God, we thank you for your word, especially the book of Leviticus this morning. And God, we come confessing that it is hard to understand. We even come confessing that sometimes it comes across a little dry. And so, God, we pray that your spirit would use this word of yours to awaken our hearts, to turn our desires to you, Lord God. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's just start by talking about Leviticus. What on earth do we know about Leviticus? How do we begin to even try to understand this book that seems to be filled with tons of rules and regulations that uh, are out of date, that are out of touch with our modern culture? So how do we understand this book? It's important for us to first just see how this book fits into the rest of the story of God. Two weeks ago, as we were working our way through Genesis, we were in Genesis chapter 12. And we saw God call Abram. And when God calls Abram, he also gives him promises. He promises him three things. First, he promises Abram offspring. And then he promises Abram that he will have a relationship with God. And the third thing that he promises Abram is land. The first five books of the Bible are really considered to be a unit called the Torah. And these first five books of the Bible spend all of their pages explaining how God is faithful to keep his promises, his promises to Abraham. And so the first book, Genesis, is all about God fulfilling his promise to Abraham that he will have offspring. And he does. The last two books of the Torah, Numbers and Deuteronomy, are all focused on God's promise and his fulfillment of the promise to give Abraham and his descendants land. And he does. And Right in the middle, we find Exodus and Leviticus dedicated to showing us first in Exodus how God creates a relationship with the people of Israel, and then in Leviticus how God maintains That relationship with the people of Israel. Leviticus is given to us to show us what a relationship with God is supposed to look like in the Old Testament. It's a vitally important book for us to understand, but there's a problem facing the people of Israel. See, God is in a relationship with him, but the reality is God is holy. We see that throughout scripture in exodus chapter 3 moses isn't even allowed to wear shoes in the presence of god because of how holy god is at the same time that the bible tells us that god is holy it also makes it very clear that israel is not right after god saves israel out of egypt the first chance that they get they start complaining And then they create an idol out of gold and bow down to worship it. God in his anger is so upset that he threatens to destroy the people of Israel and start over with Moses. And then we see something that makes it even more important to understand Leviticus. God not only is in a relationship with Israel, but he also dwells among them. Take a look at Exodus 29. It says this, I will dwell among the people of Israel and will be their God. And they shall know that I am the, and I am the Lord their God, who brought them out of the land of Egypt, that I might dwell among them. I am the Lord their God. God dwells among a people who are far from holy. And that's where Leviticus comes in. God is holy, Israel is not. God cannot dwell among unholiness, and yet he dwells among the people of Israel. And so Leviticus is given to Israel to show them how they are to relate to God, how they are to worship God who lives among them. All these rules that seem dated and unnecessary to us, as we look at this from the perspective of the cross, are very important in correcting our modern overfriendliness with God. I think one of the dangers facing the church today is that we have a tendency to, to be a little too friendly with God. Now don't get me wrong, the Bible is very clear that through Christ, we have a loving relationship with our Heavenly Father. But we must also hold that intention with the fact that God is a consuming fire, that God will not tolerate unholiness in his presence. That means ancient Israel's unholiness, and that also means our unholiness if we stand on our own. God shows us how to, or Leviticus shows us how to relate to God. It shows us the great lengths that the people of Israel went to in order to worship their God. Not to gain access to God, because grace was what happened, to give them access to God, but instead on how to continue worshiping God faithfully. When I was growing up, I uh, attended a very traditional Presbyterian church with my parents. And when I was six or seven, I remember flipping through one of the hymnals that, was in the, that were located in the pews. And in addition to the hymns that were found in that hymnal, the first hundred pages or so of that hymnal just filled with instructions on how to worship. Just filled page after page after page on how to worship God faithfully according to that denomination. In a way... That's what the book of Leviticus is. It's an instruction manual that God has given to the people of Israel. It's a way for them to understand how to worship God the right way. It says God is holy and you are not. So if you're going to live with him, you better be holy. And this is how you do it. So we look at Leviticus through this lens. It's easy to see how it is an important book in the history of the church, especially for the people of Israel. But at the same time, I'm not going to be naive and say that it's still not hard for us to understand. What is it about Leviticus that makes it so difficult for us today? I think there are two things. First, Leviticus is hard for us because it is so distant. Leviticus is so hard for us because it's so distant from us today. Leviticus was written about 3,500 years ago. It was written to a group of people that are very different than us. It was written to a group of people who worship in a very different way than us, who live different lives than us. And the reason why Leviticus is so hard for us to understand today is because it is so distant from our current context. Second thing, Leviticus is hard for us today because it focuses primarily on function. Primarily on function. As we open up Leviticus, what we're going to see is that Leviticus spends basically the entire time describing how to offer these sacrifices. It doesn't spend much time at all looking at the purpose behind those sacrifices. If it did, it'd be a lot easier for us to bridge the gap. It'd be a lot easier to say, all right, well, this is how we're going to take this biblical truth and we're going to bring it into our culture. We're going to import it and this is how it applies to us today. It's much more difficult for us when it focuses on function and it looks at the ways that we are supposed to offer up these different animals. The reason why Leviticus is difficult for us is because it was so obvious to its modern day or to its original audience. They understood the purpose, and so it wasn't even mentioned here. That's our goal to bridge the gap to look at the purpose of these sacrifices and bridge the gap to our modern day context. I'm not going to say that after this sermon series, you're going to be able to have the best, most edifying quiet times known to man from the book of Leviticus. But I hope that we can look at Leviticus and we can see with gratitude how the people of Israel once worshipped God, And we can see with even more gratitude how we now worship God through Christ. So again, if you have your Bible, I invite you to open up to Leviticus chapter 1. Please follow along, uh, starting in verses 1 and 2. The Lord God called Moses and spoke to him from the tent of meeting, saying, Speak to the people of Israel and say to them, When any of you brings an offering to the Lord... You shall bring your offering of livestock from the herd or from the flock. The majority of the book of Leviticus is just simply God telling Moses how to uh, to write down different worship instructions for the people of Israel. The setting of the book of of Leviticus, it it takes place while the people of Israel are in the wilderness. They have just uh, left Mount Sinai. God has just established a relationship with them. And now he's saying that this is how you are supposed to keep your end of the covenant. Leviticus 1, these first two verses show us one of the most primary ways to worship God. And that was through offerings, to give sacrifices to God. If you look at the language here, it's very clear that these offerings are voluntary. God does not demand these of the people of Israel. But at the same time that they're voluntary, they are also expected of the people of Israel. Notice what it says in verse 2 here when it's describing these offerings. It says this, you shall bring your offerings of livestock from the herd or from the flock. God demands and requires that offerings be costly. These offerings should be offered from their herds, from their livestock. You couldn't go hunting, and present wild game as an offering. It must be something that belongs to you if you're going to sacrifice it. It had to be costly in God's eyes. God isn't concerned primarily with the the ritual. God never cares about dead religion. He's instead focused on the heart behind the ritual. Hosea chapter 6 says this, For I desire steadfast love, And not sacrifice, the knowledge of God rather than burnt offerings. And here at the beginning of Leviticus, God wants his people to remember this that going through the motions of these sacrifices, not acceptable to him. Not acceptable to him. He is concerned with the heart. I just want to pause and say, isn't that true for us today too? God isn't focused on ritual, but is instead focused on the heart. God is not impressed when we show up on Sunday mornings, but are far from him. God is not impressed with us when we are singing words, but we are focused on what we were doing last night. God isn't impressed when we are trying to look like we're paying attention, and yet we're thinking about our fantasy football team. Which starts in just a few moments. God is concerned with our hearts. God knows our hearts. Leviticus reminds us of that. God wants his people to worship him wholeheartedly with their hearts. And the way that their hearts are expressed to him. One of the ways at least is through the offerings of burnt offerings. Now burnt offerings It's a very common phrase, but we might not know exactly what they are. So let's just spend some time looking at burnt offerings in general. First, burnt offerings are the most common offerings in the Old Testament. The most common offerings in the Old Testament. They are performed hundreds of years before the book of Leviticus, during the times of Abraham and the times of Noah. They were also performed hundreds of years after the book of Leviticus. They took place every single morning and every single night. They were offered up to God. They were offered during feasts. They were offered during festivals. They were very common in Israel. Next thing, the requirement for burnt offerings were both flexible and inflexible. One of the things that you'll notice as you begin to read Leviticus chapter 1 is that even though it contains uh, different instructions, it's really just three sets of instructions on how to offer burnt offerings. First is how to offer up a bull. Second, how to offer a sheep or, or a goat. And then the third is for a turtle dove or a pigeon. We notice that there is flexibility here in the way that God has set things up. If you can't afford a bull, God says, you know what, that's fine. Just take an animal from your flocks, whether it's a sheep or a goat. God says, if you can't afford a goat, that's fine. Go find yourself a turtle dove or a pigeon. They're very cheap. And notice, at the very end of each of these paragraphs, the response of God is the exact same. God isn't concerned with the uh, animal that is offered. God is concerned with the heart behind the person who is offering the animal. There is flexibility for the poor here, but at the same time that there's flexibility, there is also inflexibility. Notice how rigid these instructions are. If you're going to offer up a bull, this is the process according to Leviticus chapter 1, verses 3 through 9. If you're going to offer up a sheep or a goat, this is the process, according to verses 10 through 12. If you're going to offer up a small bird, the process is clearly defined in the rest of the chapter. God's commands for burnt offerings are both flexible and inflexible for us. Next thing, the burnt offering was wholly offered, uh, wholly burned on the altar. Verse 9 says this, But its entrails and its legs he shall wash with water. And then notice this part, And the priest shall burn all of it on the altar as a burnt offering, a food offering with a pleasing aroma to the Lord. This is unusual. This is significant because every single other offering that the people of Israel would offer up, that would, they would burn before God... They only offered up a portion of it. But here, God demands all of it. The whole burnt offering is what some translations call this. It was something that God demanded all of. And one final thing, the burnt offering was one of the ways that Israel was different than the other nations. It's one of the ways that Israel was different than the other nations. There were many nations surrounding Israel that didn't offer up burnt offerings. They, uh, they were unheard of in Mesopotamia. they were unheard of in Egypt, where the people of Israel were just coming from. Even those who practiced these burnt offerings did so in a different way. Take a look at verse eight, "And Aaron's sons, the priests, shall arrange the pieces, the head and the fat, on the wood that is on the fire and on, uh, uh, that is on the fire on the altar. And you notice if it says, they will arrange everything, everything is going to get burned." Why is it that they mention the head? Why is it they mention the fat? We'll talk about the head here in a moment. But this word fat is a special word referring to the fat that surrounds the kidney and surrounds the liver. In ancient times, the surrounding nations would offer up sacrifices and they would save these organs. And they would use them to practice Divination. They would use them to try to see the future. What God is saying here is saying, offer all of it up. Don't use these things for divination. Don't seek your future through these animals. Trust your future to me. The burnt offering was a way that the people of Israel were different than the surrounding nations. So that's a little bit of an overview of these burnt offerings. As I mentioned, uh, the bulk of Leviticus 1 tells us how to offer them. We're going to look at purpose here in just a a few moments, but it's important for us to look at how they are offered here. First, an animal was chosen. It was chosen by the person who was going to bring it to the priest, and they bring it before the priest, and they would declare their intentions for this animal. Take a look at verses 3 and 4. If his offering is a burnt offering from the herd, he shall offer a male without blemish. He shall bring it to the entrance of the tent of meeting that he may be accepted before the Lord. He shall lay his hand on the head of the burnt offering and it shall be accepted for him to make atonement for him. The worshiper next would take the animal and they would kill it. They were the ones who were in charge of slaughtering the animal before the priest. And after that, the priest would take the blood and would throw it on the side of the altar. Look at verse 5. Then he shall kill the bull before the Lord, and Aaron's sons, the priest, shall bring the blood and throw the blood against the sides of the altar that is at the entrance of the tent of meeting. Next, we see what happens. And after killing this animal, it was the worshiper who was in charge of dividing up the animal and handing the different parts of this animal to the priest who would place them on the altar. It might sound gruesome to us today, but this was the responsibility of the worshiper. It wasn't responsibility of the priest or of a butcher. If you were going to offer up an animal as a burnt offering, you were responsible for dividing it up. Verses 6 through 9. Then he shall flay the burnt offering and cut it into pieces. And the sons of Aaron the priest shall put fire on the altar and arrange wood on the fire. And Aaron's sons the priest shall arrange the pieces, the head and the fat, on the wood that is on the fire on the altar. But its entrails and its legs he shall wash with water. And the priest shall burn all of it on the altar as a burnt offering, a food offering, with a pleasing aroma to the Lord." You see, once the animal was appropriately divided up and placed on the altar, well, after it was appropriately cleaned in the right way, it would be burned whole. And the text tells us that this is a pleasing aroma to God. Might sound like a a weird phrase to refer to God, but what it's just saying is that this is how you know that God has accepted your offering. God looks upon us the offer with a pleasing look he accepts them in his presence the rest of leviticus chapter 1 describes the different ways to offer up the different animals if you notice the next passage talking about offering up a sheep or a goat are it's very very similar almost identical The next passage, which refers to how to offer up a small bird, is different. But that's just because of the practicality of two people trying to operate on such a small animal. This is how you would offer up a burnt offering. And for days and days and days, century after century, this is what would happen. Over the course of Israel's history, millions of animals were offered up to God in this way you might be wondering well why why on earth would the people of israel do this i think this text tells us five purposes for the burnt offering and it's my hope that they can be applied to us today five purposes first the burnt offering was meant to be costly the burnt offering was meant to be costly take a look again at verse three if his offering is a burnt offering from the herd he shall offer a male without blemish He shall bring it to the entrance of the tent of meeting that he may be accepted before the Lord. God does not want an offering from his people that will be worthless. God doesn't want them to do something that will cost them nothing. If this was an act of worship, then God desired that that worship would cost them something. The animal that they were supposed to choose was supposed to be one of the most expensive animals that they owned. Imagine for a second that you're an ancient Israelite. You own just a small piece of land that you've inherited from your family. On that small land, you, you grow a modest supply of crops for food. And you also have one or two different bulls. You want to worship God, but you can't just offer up your bull that is sick and is dying. Instead, God says, if you're going to worship me with a burnt offering, then you're going to offer up the most precious, most prized possession that you have, your healthy bowl. Remember, these are voluntary sacrifices, but if they're going to take this extra step, then God demands that it would cost them. This is a culture where people would only eat meat two, three times a year, if even that, So imagine the great cost to see hundreds of pounds of meat going up in smoke. The burnt offering was meant to be costly. So ask yourself, how much is your worship costing you? Now, the burnt offering isn't meant to make us feel guilty. But at the same time, it reminds us of the great call The great cost of following God. Our lives and our worship should be costly. Second, the burnt offering was meant to be substitutionary. Meant to be substitutionary. Take a look at verse 4. He shall lay his hand on the head of the burnt offering and it shall be accepted for him to make atonement for him. This laying laying hands on the head of the animal was not a trivial act. It was symbolic. It was a way of signifying substitution. That this animal was now going to die in the place of the person who was offering it. Most scholars agree, agree that there was some sort of dialogue that would take place here between the priest and the person offering up the animal. The priest would say something like, why are you here? And they would say, to offer up this animal. And then they would explain the reason why they were offering this animal up. This was a sign of substitution. Laying hands on the animal was an intentional reminder to the people that this animal was going to die. So that they would be able to live. Burnt offerings are substitutionary. Next The burnt offering was personal. Notice how engaged the worshiper is in this process. They are the ones who present the animal. They are the ones who slit its throat. They are the ones who separate internal organs one from another. When we take this idea of this being a very personal process... And we combine it with the previous two ones. The fact that worship is costly. And this is meant to be substitutionary. It, it really speaks to us. You see, I, I, I think it reminds us that sin is costly. I have no doubt that as the people were offering up these animals. As they were dividing up the animal. Preparing them for their offering. They had time to think. and As they were hewing limb from limb. They were reminded that this animal died to maintain their relationship with God. But not only that, it reminds us of the great gap between God and humanity. It reminds us that sin is costly, yes, but it also reminds us how big of a gap there is between us and God. I think after the cross, we can take for granted what Christ has done for us to give us free access to the Father. The people of Israel were intimately aware with how costly it was to approach God. How difficult it was to approach God because of how separate He was. How holy He was. The burnt offering was personal. Next, the burnt offering was to make one acceptable before God. To make one acceptable before God. Look again at verses 3 and 4. If his offering is a burnt offering from the herd, he shall offer a male without blemish. He shall bring it to the entrance of the tent of meeting that he may be accepted before the Lord. He shall lay his hand on the head of the burnt offering and it shall be accepted for him to make atonement for him. Notice the purpose here. The purpose is atonement. Atonement is just a theological word that refers to the restoration of relationship between God and humanity. And so why is this animal slaughtered? This animal is slaughtered to make a person acceptable in God's eyes once more. You see how these purposes build one on the other. The burnt offering reminds us that atonement is costly. It reminds us that it is substitutionary. And it reminds us, because of the great love of Jesus, deeply personal. 1 John 4, and this, is, and this is love. Not that we have loved God, but that He loved us and sent His Son to be the propitiation for our sins. That He sent His Son to make atonement for us, to restore us into relationship with Him. See, in Christ, we have a far greater atonement for our sin. And it is through him that we are ultimately found to be acceptable before God. I mentioned that one of the tensions that the book of Leviticus wrestles through is how do an unholy people live in the presence of an unholy God? In a way, that's the same dilemma facing us today. We are an unholy people living in the presence of, an unholy, of a very holy God. And the question is, how do we live in his presence And the burnt offering points us to the cross. And it reminds us that the great price has been paid. Atonement has been made for our sins. Restoring us into relationship with God. Making us acceptable in his sight once more. One final thing. The burnt offering was a declaration that one belonged wholly to God. The declaration that one belonged wholly to God. As I mentioned earlier, the burnt offering was one of the ways that, that people, it was the only offering, rather, that would be wholly burned on the altar. And this is significant because it shows us the cost, but it's also significant because it shows us what God wants from us. It shows us the great lengths that God desires for us to go to in order to be acceptable in His eyes. He wants all of us. He doesn't want us to hold anything back from him. He wants us to offer everything up to him. And this is seen clearly in Old Testament stories that talk about burnt offerings. In Genesis chapter 22, Abraham is called to offer up his son Isaac as a burnt offering. God is asking Abraham to let go of everything and offer it up to God. In 1 Samuel 15, we see Saul's disobedience in offering up a burnt offering. The reason why God curses Saul and his family is because he is not offering up everything in God's eyes. In 2 Samuel 6, David offers up a burnt offering as the Ark of the Covenant enters into Jerusalem. And it is... For repentance and forgiveness of sins, yes. But even, so, even more so, it is a sign of the commitment of the people of Israel to God. Saying that all that they are is His. The burnt offering was a declaration that the worshiper belonged wholly to God. If you were to sum up the burnt offering, I think you would just be able to say it this way. The burnt offering is a sacrifice of surrender. Burn offering is a sacrifice of surrender. It is a sign to God that all that we are, all that we have, belongs to Him. Every single area of our lives belongs to God. Dutch theologian Abraham Kuyper puts it this way, there is not a square inch in the whole domain of our human existence over which Christ, who is sovereign over all, does not cry, mine. God wants our all he wants us to sacrifice surrender all to him you might be saying well well, how do we how do we do that how do we live out our lives as a sacrifice of surrender i think a great place to start is romans chapter 12 in romans 12 paul is talking about offerings and a sacrifice and and most, most scholars believe that he has the burnt offering in view here when he says this. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercy of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect Because of the cross, God doesn't want us to offer up burnt offerings. God wants us to be burnt offerings. He wants us to live our lives wholly dedicated to Him. To give up the entirety of our lives to Him in worship. To hold nothing back from the altar. To do so is, at the risk of using too harsh of a word, unacceptable to God. Worship is costly. Worship is personal. But it is the desired display of commitment to God that he wants from us. God desires our all. And so ask yourself, am I giving him my all? Am I withholding anything from God? Is there any area of my life that I refuse to turn over to his care? Is there any area that I hold on to stubbornly refusing to offer it up to God? Leviticus 1 calls us to let it go. To offer it up to God. The burnt offering calls us to live our lives as a sacrifice of surrender. I just want to take a moment and think about what things would be like if we did this. What if this Christmas season we saw our lives as an opportunity to to be a burnt offering, wholly devoted, wholly surrendered to God What if we were no longer caught up in the nostalgic uh, uh, that our, our secular Christmas offers, but instead we decided to volunteer at a nonprofit ministry, like a Thursday at the Dream Center, working along those who are less privileged? What if we cooked a meal for a family in the church that we desired to get to know better? What if we decided to spend a little bit less on Christmas presents this year and spend the rest of the money for gifts, for missionaries like the Nakazawas who were here last week working among unreached people groups in Japan? What if God calls us to give up that one area of our life that we refuse to give up? Whether it's our work, our finances, our family, our fear of the future instead we place it in God's hands instead of trying to handle it on our own friends christmas is a time of preparation i mentioned the season of advent is a time to prepare our hearts and our minds for the coming of christ and what better way to do that than to offer up all of us to god friends the burnt offering is a sacrifice of surrender. It was a sacrifice that God desires each and every one of us to make. Let's do that this Christmas season. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for the words of Leviticus 1. We thank you for the burnt offering, and and even more so, God, we thank you that we no longer have to enter your presence with the blood of animals because we are able to enter your presence through the blood of your son. God, I pray that as we seek to honor you, seek to follow you, especially this Christmas season, that we would do so by offering all of our hearts, all of our lives to you. Give us the strength to do that, God.